This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammy here. First of all, today, a chat with Janetta Petrus Nassa. Um, amazing book Janetta wrote called Stars in the Blackness Between Them that I loved, and that is the August Cammy's Book Club pick. You can go to bookshop.org slash shop slash Cammy's Book Club and book, and not book, that's not what it is, buy any of the books from my book club. So far, we're three months in. Why do this? Well, it supports queer artists. It also is fun. I have chats with these folks on my Instagram Live. You can walk, you can watch back to my chats with Casey McQuiston, who wrote One Last Stop, or John Paul Brammer, who wrote Ola Poppy. Also, the books are queer. I love reading queer books. That's the best. Uh, also, it helps independent booksellers. So when you buy through Bookshop, as opposed to Jeff Bezos's company, um, you help support the indie bookshops that make your neighborhood awesome. So I love this. It's been super fun to do it. And I'm so excited for you to read The Stars and the Blackness Between Them and to hear today's episode with Janata. Hey, you know what else? I got some stand-up comedy shows coming up. August 15th, I will be at Dynasty Typewriter here in Los Angeles. Shows at like 6 p.m. Why? Because I want to go to bed early. And you can too. Also, August 26th and 27th, I'm doing two shows in Brooklyn at the Bell House. The 26th is almost sold out. There's just like a few tickets left. It's 27th. I'm sure will be more tickets selling. What am I saying? What I'm saying is this. Uh, There are a bunch of COVID precautions. You can visit the individual venues to find out what they're doing, but I'm only doing venues that are taking COVID precautions. And you can go to cameronespizudo.com slash tour hyphen dates and just get tickets to all that shit. I did a show at Dynasty Typewriter last month. It was like the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. And everybody was there. Everybody. So anyway, enjoy the episode and see you live very soon. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Janata Petrus Nassa. Um, I go by she, her pronouns. I am an author, mm, cosmic bag lady, runaway <laughs> witch. Um, yeah, multidisciplinary artist. Um, yeah, I'm born and living on Dakota land and um, what is also called Minneapolis and um, of, um, yeah, I'm like so excited to just vibe with you today. And, you know, I wasn't expecting to introduce myself. So that's why I'm like, do I know myself? I'm like, how do I introduce myself? So I feel like I I need to qualify. I love how thorough you're being. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, because I was like, how do I introduce myself? I, Yeah, but, you know, that's good enough. I'm a mama. I'm a gay wifey living my best life to the best of my ability. 
<laughs> I didn't know you were a parent. Um, yeah. That's interesting to me as it applies to one of the big things that we're going to talk about today, which is your amazing book, The Stars mm-hmm. and the Blackness Between Them, um, which I read for a book club that I'm in. I, I'm i in a couple of book clubs, and one of them, um, this was, you know, we like everybody votes. It's all very democratic, Internet. egalitarian. Yeah, ex- ex- that's exactly <laughs> it. Yes. Um, and so anyway, we, re- we read this book and I was really stunned. I really love your work. I like, I really loved this book. Um, mm. So thank you for writing it. Hey, I mean, I can't believe I did it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then I also had the pleasure to listen to the audiobook. Okay. Um, and you read, um, I guess half of half of it. You read you read one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, character Mabel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you read one character's perspective. Um, and I'm curious about just even starting there. Um, why? Because you also said you know mis- multidisciplinary ar- artist, and so why why read? your book, why read from that one character's perspective? Um, you, you have a beautiful reading voice also. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about that process? And then also why not read from every character's perspective? Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's just when you are, when they're making an audiobook, there's a director who works on it. I, I didn't know anything about making audiobooks before my own audiobook. And when my, um, editor was saying like, hey, you, um, you know, here, there, here's the director for your audiobook, and they want you to select from, you know, these people to read your parts. I was like, can I put my little head in the ring? I, can, I got some voice on me, like, and I'm a performer and creator. And, you know, you know, I do all kinds of art, you know, actually, yeah, this is one of my first things I've ever published is this book. So, um, yeah. So and my editor who knew me, knows me was just like, oh, yeah, like he like totally affirmed that. And so um, and then um, they wanted uh, Bonnie Turpin, um, who's like, I consider her like the Angela Bassett audiobooks, you know, to read the other character. And I was really excited to see what she would do with it. And it was like my first, like I said, you know, um, foray into the audiobook world. So I think um, I'm glad I got to do it. It was very interesting. I think like what's interesting about writing a book is that it's such a furious, like kind of um, just provocation of your spirit. Like you just are like in the mode, you're in these characters, you're in these emotions. At least that's how I experienced it. And um, so reading it, you know, and like reading this character and, but also really trying to embody a 16 year old voice and, and, and feeling like it was very emotional, you know, and intense to like, um, I feel like these characters are such an intimate, beloved part of my spirit, you know? So it was a, it was a fun and juicy experience, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm also curious about, um, and this is like, again, this is like really nitty gritty, but like in reading, reading specifically Mabel's viewpoint, like, is that somebody that you at 16 would have identified with? Are, are y'all the same sort of 
like occupying the same space in terms of gender or attitude? Is that, or is that something that you had to step into for that character? I think it's a little bit of both. I think in a lot of ways, Mabel is entirely herself. Like I definitely, to use your words, do feel like I would have identified with her. If me and her went to the same school, I think we would have been friends for sure, you know? And I think that's certainly the space I write too, is what were the spirits I wanted to see in books? What did I want to see Black queer girls experience? I didn't even have a, they're so, I think I read one book and my whole life with the Black queer girl. And like it. Yeah. What is that book? (laughs) That book was called Ruby by Rosa Guy, who's actually another Caribbean, um, you know, writer. So yeah, that was, and I remember I stumbled upon it. I don't know if I had, I mean, I like totally stand librarians, like librarians raised me latchkey baby of the 90s. So like, I really sort of got lost in these characters. And I didn't, I think for me, like I was interested in romance and like kind of like that sensuous, you know, pleasure experience that like was only really experienced in hetero and white spaces in literary worlds um, that I, that I, well, no, 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 no. I'm tripping. How could I? I have the tattoo on me. Celia and Suge, the color purple. Like, that was another queer, black. Alice Walker actually is, like, truly, you know, one of the goats as far as, like, creating a black queer literary imagination for, you know, people to delve into. Um, but, yeah, so as far as, like, Mabel, like, I do feel like I relate to her being a, you know, Black girl growing up in Minneapolis, being very curious and questioning about my sexuality, um, and also just filled with so much curiosity about like, well, how does, how do I communicate and like actually make contact with my desire, you know, which I think was mm-hmm. the thing I was very intentional in writing into this book. I didn't want to like absent that sort of way that like, that's such a palpable you know, part of our existence as young people is like understanding our bodies and what feels good. How do we negotiate that? So I feel like I relate to Mabel in, in those ways. Yeah. And being and nerdy. <laughs> what'd you say? And being nerdy, you, say, you know? Well, that's, I mean, that's, hello, that's where I'm at already is that, I mean, that's, that's why I was asking about um, voicing that character specifically. And, you know, cause I'll, I'll say like the sort of way that you read it, it's like a sort of, um, there's like a slow and and deliberate pattern to your speech. And then like the register is um, lower and it like feels a little leaned back. And like that to me, that's, that's gay as hell. Like that felt, Mm -hmm. so like (laughs) that comes through to me, you know, as a listener. And part Mm -hmm. of the reason I think it comes through to me is because we don't always get to have nice things. You know, we could have like a great <laughs> book, but it might be read by, um, you know, somebody who's like missing the the specificity or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm watching something and just like the character, like, like let's say it's a movie or something and the characters are supposed to fall in love, but there's no um, chemistry between the actors mm-hmm. that they've chosen. Like for whatever reason, they've chosen these actors, but it's not because of chemistry. <laughs> and, I know. Um, That's how I feel about Grace and Frankie. Do you ever watch that show with Lily Tomlin? You and know, weirdly, I've never fr- seen it, even though I have sorry to like, me to put friends you on, the on that show. So, oh, whoopsie-daisy, sorry to them. Whoopsie-daisy, anyway. sorry. You can edit but, that part out then. Um, no, but like, but they, they have like, 
No, their male characters, like their male husbands are supposed to fall in love in it. Right. And I'm like, they got no chemistry. You don't see that. You can't imagine them rubbing up on each other, grabbing (laughs) each other. I think especially in queer space, like we have such a sense of like, all right, like it's missing that thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel you. Yeah. Like I have this, there's a, there's a, there's a picture of me that I came across not too long ago <laughs> where I'm like in the I'm like in the back of somebody's truck. I whatever I'm doing, I'm like I'm like I'm like at like a church function. Like nothing <laughs> is going on that makes but whatever's going on in my face, it's the gayest face you've ever seen in your entire life. I'm like my like lip is pouting down. I'm like even there's like a dude behind me. We're like gonna go like hammer some nails into a wall because like that's part of what we're doing with the church there's no reason for that to be there but it's like oh yeah that's there so anyway it's just something i appreciated in hearing your voice um as i was listening to the audiobook and you know again well so this is a love story Mm -hmm. um and i hope this isn't i hope this is not offensive i do not know if it is but oh, there is out. a whole series of like teen rom-coms or teen romances that involve um characters loving each other and sort of being kept apart by um large large circumstances mm-hmm. like for instance a walk to remember is one that when my little sister was in high school she was obsessed with that with that property. So I watched the movie, I read the book and I listened to the soundtrack because I'm seven years older than her and I really wanted to have something in common. Oh, um, you're such a nice big sister. Yeah, it was a really, I'm like, like can I really, step it up? <laughs> yeah, it was a really cute um, experience. So anyway, A Walk to Remember is one that I think of. Um, there's that one six feet apart. There's like one that's called, um, there's the one that the fault in our stars. Anyway, fault in our stars. Yeah, it's no, a whole, I, it's a whole genre. Yeah, it is. And what's funny is like I really stumbled in on it, just to be honest, because um, that's what the question that, was going to be. Like, is this? Did you mean to be in that genre? No. Or do you at think all. this is something in that genre? That's. What I I'm mean, like, I'll maybe I'll you're going to be like. I, I'm not the fault in our stars. That's no, no, like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I feel like yeah, I like totally. Yeah, I'm just so grateful to be a young adult writer. Like, I could have, this is my first book. I could have been in any genre. And I do think, like, Mm -hmm. being in the young adult space has felt very sacred, you know, actually. um, Because it really has an interest in, like, what kinds of conversations do we want to be having, not only with young people, but with the young people within us. Like, kind of, like, healing some things. But as far as that's concerned, um, so when this book first came to me, it was, like, I was deep in my activism and still am an activist around like, you know, the end of the police state, um, the end of um, the prison industrial complex as we know it. And, you know, really like how do we protect black bodies from uh, white supremacist violence? You know, that is just such an inherent part of existence amongst all sorts of things that I stand up and resist for as an activist. Um, but at the time when this story came to me, because it really came to me, like, literally, I remember the shower I was taking. And it was like, there's a kid with a serious illness and a man on death row. And they're both Black. And their experiences are in conversation with Black existentiality. Like, that was 
sort of the seed. And initially it wasn't even a gay book. It was like the main character was a young man and then, you know, a fool. And the love interest wasn't so central. It was kind of like, what is this conversation between sort of the ways that like, yeah, I was just seeing how young Black children, you know, um, because that was around the time um, of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, where it was like, oh, yeah, like these are children, even if they stole a blunt or even if whatever it is, the ways that just a Black child was like criminalized and executed, you know, and how we had to like fight for people to see these lives as sacred, you know? Mm -hmm. So, the book to me was like, you know, but like if somebody has a serious illness, you know, which in this country, you know, like, oh, if someone has a serious illness, you're like, oh my gosh, how tragic. That's so sad. But like, if you're a Black kid who dies from the serious sickness, illness of white supremacy, like you're put on trial for your own death, you know? Mm -hmm. So like the book started off with me playing with this idea and conversation. And then Mm -hmm. I just started writing it. My mentor was like, why don't She's like, why is this not a gay book? You know, you want to write you a gay book, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was like, facts, let's do this. Um, so, you know, Mabel became Mabel. And then the queer sort of diaspora love, because I knew that the love interest would be from another country. But once it became a queer love story, I was like, you know, then queerness in Trinidad and queerness in Minneapolis and, you know, queerness through time and, you know, within the Black body became such a central curiosity to the work, you know? Um, so, yeah, so then, like, when my book came out and it's kind of like, oh, you know, people are like, oh, trigger wording, cancer. And I'm like, uh, because for me, that wasn't the emphasis of it. It is a mm-hmm. part of the storyline. And to me, I don't even think I say she has cancer. It's just like some mysterious, weird illness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I got very curious about death and dying, about what did I want to say about death and dying, especially um, in this world, you know, that really has a different approach to how people are valued based off of who they are. So... I got very curious about like death feminism and the ways that like, you know, a lot of women um, and people of all genders are really recapturing this idea of death and like, what does it mean? So anyways, I'm getting very existential, but I just wanted to like, you know, speak to the fact that like, yes, it is a, it is a theme. And I think it's a valuable theme wherever it's addressed, but I became very interested in like, how am I speaking about it specifically within black life? Um, as well as, um, you know, like really sort of unpack and be curious about what is dying, not just as a plot point, but as a certain like exploration in existentiality. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a that's a really interesting answer. I guess the, I guess the reason I ask about it is like, for, you know, I think about why something like cancer or like mysterious illness for teens who are in love, which is sort of the, the like Romeo and Juliet prototype, um, Mm -hmm. why that resonates and why those books seem to, you know, sell well over time. And part of it, I think is that at least for me, you know, when, when you're a teen, like that's kind of how everything feels anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't mean to minimize, minimize anybody who is actually dealing with chronic illness, but that high of stakes Um, is certainly, to me, how early relationships felt. So I think there's a sort of um, 
like an empathy that a reader can have at that age, especially for that thing. It's not just like, oh God, the worst thing that could happen to me. Like my biggest fear as a teen is like not getting to live the life that I want to live, but that it also just reflects like I'm so crushed for and by this person. Like it's a crush. <laughs> like it's like, mm-hmm. like, like I have feelings, but it is a crush. Um, and so I, you know, that makes sense to me. And, and I think it's why it shows up. And I think what is unusual about your book um, that you were just alluding to is that then that situation is sort of placed in a real world where the characters have other things that they're dealing with. Cause often when there is this sort of um, illness storyline, then like those characters just have like enough money to pay for treatment. They like have mm-hmm. some sort of parental availability. They like don't necessarily, they're off, they're like white usually. So they're not really dealing with um, systemic injustice. You know, that's not like a part of it. Um, and so anyway, it just is, it it felt like a like bringing something that we've seen into a, into reality a little bit more um as opposed to having it be like everybody lives in a small town the town is behind them and they're all really wealthy so they're going to get whatever treatment they need but th- they might still <laughs> they might still pass but but it will be in this like you know, where streets in town will be named after them and not because, you know, they were killed on the street. Anyway, so it just mm-hmm. felt like a very, it's a very different take on something that I think we've seen before because it is positioned in uh, the world. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that I'll say that, and that's that's why I was asking earlier if you're a parent or that, you know, that saying I didn't know you were a parent because... There's certainly some interesting parent stuff in this book. Could you talk a little bit about that? Could you talk a little bit about our characters' relationships with their parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like I was very interested in thinking about people of my generation who have done a lot of um, reflection on, I don't know, like I think, kind of raising the next generation with love and like really healing the ways that like many of us didn't have access to parents who were healed and whole, you know, Mm -hmm. and how could I show sort of that experience of black parenthood that I think I just haven't seen, but I've seen in my own community, but I don't see depicted, you know? Yeah. I I hear you. Yeah. I felt like, reading it that 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 was that was very clear to me Mm, yeah because I was like yeah like I feel like also too I learned so much from this younger generation um you know I before um I wrote this book I've I was a youth worker and you know teacher and stuff like that for a lot of years um before I moved into being an artist exclusively and for me I yeah, like I really learned so much from young people and how the, I think that's every, you know, opportunity of every generation is to learn from all of the ways that generations are observing certain t- technologies, you know, not just like, you know, kind of these tech technologies, but like emotional and social technologies, like the ways that young people are understanding sexuality and gender in such a like, you know, my 
goddess daughter, you know, is a plant mom. She's 14. And um, and talking about her plant momhood, like she's talking about the non-binary children of hers that are plants, you know, like, oh, that plant's non-binary, that plant's a femme, da 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 And I was like, oh, yeah, like there's just so much more access to concepts <laughs> that really did come from, you know, them and their, like, you know, um, desire to feel more felt, you know, in, in a real way. And, you know, I have a seven-year-old who's, you know, through marriage, my bonus baby, and she's constantly, you know, sort of, yeah, just like offering ways for me to really understand and heal and navigate my trauma, you know, like that I experienced as a kid her age. Like there's things I experienced through her that I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot that I went through this thing. And that's how my parents handled it. And that actually harmed my spirit and confused my spirit in a certain way. Um, so I feel like there's ways that I'm constantly trying to like, you know, improve upon, you know, my experience and really heal things that I want to sort of release as this mm. function. And that was the thing I wanted to see happen in this book where it's not like these parents are perfect. Like they stumble, they're focused on what they think things are. And, um, you know, and also, you know, um, you know, there's parents that are really problematic, such as Audrey's, you know, who's, you know, has her mom who's mm -hmm. just totally like caught up in her Christian thinking. But then she has this magical grandmother who's very like, you know, open and loving, you know, as well as other families. So, you know, just also thinking about and I think this is a thing that's very black and queer is like how family is just so queer. You know what I mean? Like, you know, where, yes, you have your mother, yes, you have your father, but you have your cousin or uncle or other people who, you know, sort of take on the shaping of you, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was the thing I also wanted to, to, to play on. It's like, you know, yes, here's, you know, for example, Coco and Saquon, you know, they're very much like, oh, here's this nuclear family. We got our Black family, da 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 But, like, there's ways that Saquon is just not getting gender and the cues of um from their child that like okay well you know the way that she understands desire and who she's interested isn't what he thinks or could imagine maybe even um and I think um you know Coco's a little bit more hip but she's still an observer of the generation it's like she is still also learning you know and having to you know adapt you know so yeah, I was interested in playing with a, a wide array of understanding, like, you know, the Black family, because I think in, um, and queer family, because I think even amongst the, the girls and the teens, there was such a sense of family, you know, between Jazzy and Ursa and Mabel and Audrey, like there's ways that they created their own niche family, which I think is so queer, you know, um, and very adolescent. It's like, you know, this is our first time where we're selecting people that are of our vibration and frequency and not necessarily people who our parents understand or like uh, validate for us, you know, so... Yeah. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? 
absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Mabel, something that really stood out to me, you know, Mabel has relationship with her father where they garden together um, in her father's big, beautiful garden that is called Black Eden. And first of all, I mean, I don't know, I guess I kind of think gardening seems, you know, it seems gentle. It seems like, you know, of um, it's natural. It's so different than I think what we are offered as a culture about Black men, specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you were writing that, when you were, you know, dreaming that up, is that, was that, is that based on your experience of your community? Was that aspirational for how you wish you had been raised? You know, as a teen, this is what I, the kind of thing I wish I had done with my father. Um mm-hmm. Where was the inspiration for that in your life? Yeah, I think, like, I have had a really, I guess, blessed experience of interacting with Black men who like the garden and, like, love the land. Um, Via friends, mainly, you know. Um, My dad, you know, he's from St. Croix, Virgin Islands, and, like, was a country boy. And, like, I think a lot of people of his generation knew how to, like, do things with his hands, but was an extremely kind of like distant and kind of troubled spirit and also very creative and magical in other ways. Um, but so for me, like, I think there's aspects of, you know, kind of just kind of like, you know, I think for me, I was interested in highlighting, you know, some of the ways, I mean, particularly my mom would talk about her grandfather and like, you know, the ways that like Black people have had these beautiful, intimate relationships with land that wasn't completely associated with the ways that we were forced into slavery and sharecropping and being in relationship with, like, we had an ancestral relationship that was very nuanced and masterful and wise and spiritual and moved with rhythms and, you know, star knowledge and sun and moon cycles and things like that. Like, that was knowledge that African people brought when they were brought over here. And that was the thing that, you know, very much was innovations in, you know, Black sort of, um, not and, and not even Black, American agriculture period, you know? So I think for me, like, I wanted to sort of speak to the reclamation that's happening, I think, by a lot of Black folks. Um, and also, you know, be like, yeah, like, these were, we were kind of forced to, like, leave, you know, Southern land to try to like save ourselves um, and um, and Caribbean people, you know, save ourselves from the aspects of oppression and repression. Um, and also, you know, we're forced into like hyper urban inner city ghettoized environments that, you know, really did force us to kind of survive on the grid of oppression. Um, but there's so many like, you know, ways that I'm just seeing like, you know, even there's 
documentaries like High on the Hog. That's like, I don't know if you saw that on Netflix. No. It's dope. You should check it out. It's just about like the the food ways of Africa and its huge impact on, you know, Black American soul food cuisine, as well as American food, period. Um, but I think like a lot of, I don't know, I felt like a, a lot of ways in this book, I, I was always trying to add things that were of interest to me, you know, like I'm, I've been sure. a gardener and a farmer and stuff like that. I've been like worked on a farm, not a farmer myself. That shit's hard. But like, um, you have worked yeah. on a farm. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked on a farm, worked on gardens, taught urban gardening to kids in, in, in Minneapolis and in, in Minneapolis and in um, New York city. Um, and yeah, I loved the experience of like getting really urban kids to grow things and eat the things they grow and learn about the medicine of plant life. And I think it's a thing that, yeah, I think like right now that's like, so like, oh my gosh, like, you know, there's of course rich white folks who are like, this is what we do. Like I do my thing. And I mean, you know, grow their things, do their medicines. And I feel like these are ancestral indigenous knowledges from throughout the world, you know? And I think a lot of that stuff gets cut off from us because we're forced to kind of work in these industrialized spaces and we don't get to upkeep some of our folk ways. But I really wanted to show an example within this book of a family that is like, all right, yes, we're this urban family, but, you know, this father's obsessed with like how, and you know, I don't know, you may, I don't know if you know any gardeners or farmers, but they're just so nerdy about like all <laughs> I of I feel it. like I don't know the type of person that, that I don't know this. I don't know what's in this book. I don't know that person yet. There's, there's, okay. there's always, there's always yeah. an opportunity for, for that to come into my life. But, um, <laughs> but it's like, but I, I felt like it was, you know, it was like, Oh, this is believable. Like I like I know this is something that exists. I think that's what's so funny about I don't know the number of times I was just like, well, I mean it's um you know, the like black fatherhood. It's literally just like just to, it's like there's like a whole list of things that that you're upending. It's like black fatherhood, the idea that that person would be present in uh piece of art, you know, just that alone. Right. And then that, that the idea that that person would be present and gentle, present and gentle and accessible, like present, gentle, accessible, and emotional. Also, um, curious, you know, doing their own continuous education, like think like talking about books they've read in the past, but then also talking about like how that affected them Mm. and and going forward. I just see that. It's so sad. It is it. I'm going to say it is sad. Yeah. I don't think it's not sad at all it's um i think i was just reading this in pretty and it, yeah i guess i guess that made me feel i guess it did make me feel pretty fucking bummed out you know that like clearly this is not this is not such a wild idea that this person you know would exist um but i don't think i see that person on tv you know never ever well i mean who writes black men on tv it's certainly not Black men very often or black people rarely, period. Um, And I think like also, too, there's just not a ton of not there's. Yeah, there's not a ton of mainstream stuff that depicts non-white things like that's so recent and it's still so, you know, just a slice of it. So I do think that 
yeah, like there's a lot of different kinds of fathers in the world, you know, like I'm sure your imagination, like my imagination could think of, of a myriad of kinds of white fathers, good ones, bad ones, connected ones, right. inaccessible ones, nerdy ones, maternal ones, yeah. you know, deadbeat ones, dead ones, you know, whatever, yeah. like there's just Wow. It's just like, yes, white fatherhood gets to exist in a multitude and black fatherhood gets to be a deadbeat dad, a bad dad, whatever, whatever. Um, And that certainly was a thing that I was like, yeah, because part of me, like even when you're writing, it's easy to feel like you need to write what people feel like they can imagine. And if I was writing towards white people's imagination, I would write (laughs) a lot of you know, trauma porn, you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, this is just what, and this is what I think a lot of, you know, marginalized writers are being like, yeah, like these things are things that people feel like. I mean, I even think with putting this book out a lot of, yeah, I do think people are like, this book is very unique. You know what I mean? Like, because of some of these things that to Mm -hmm. me have to do with the ways that, um, yeah, different identities just have been excluded from getting to share their work, you know, and their perspectives. Absolutely. Right. And then, you know, again, as that sort of opens up that the, the you know, you're talking about like n- n- non-white folks being able to tell any stories at all. It, that's always going to start also with like the sexiest, youngest people. Like it's going to start with insecure and everybody's mm-hmm. trying to figure out who they're going to like date it's not going to necessarily start with like fatherhood because you mm-hmm. know if we're trying to capture an 18 to 35 year old audience um bare asses is a great place to mm-hmm. start you know so yeah you're right there's a there's you know there's a there's a part of this that just is like in the catching up it's going to take a while and um anyway i just was really grateful to have this book for for that reason too um, I also want to talk a little bit about Audrey's story, um, because she has a, as you were, you know, sort of talking about earlier, she has a bumpier, um, coming out mm-hmm. where, I mean, it's mm-hmm. bad. It's like mm-hmm. very bad. Um, she has to be, she's, you know, um, sort of caught by her mother it's 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 like a worst case mm-hmm. uh, situation she ends up having to live with her father who she doesn't know very well in minneapolis and um it's just a i think it's an experience that we've seen you know i'm thinking about this because you were just saying that the like trauma porn it's an experience that we've seen some parts of in like a coming out story but i think the there are also a lot of things we haven't seen. Like, like if I think about the prototypical, like, white trauma porn coming out story that it, that involves, like, the parents disowning the person and then, like, everybody's sobbing their heads off. And that's not really what's in here um, because it's a different family structure, as you were saying. It's a different cultural context. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, whether it was was it tough for you to decide whether or not to include something like that? Like, did you know you wanted to have a character who faced rejection like that? And maybe I'll ask a follow-up question after that. Did you know you wanted to include that? Um, I think I was playing around with how that would all work out. And initially I was like, 
I was back and forth between including aspects of that because I didn't want... Also, to this, like I said, it's my first book. I was like, I don't want to hurt these characters. I was just like, these are people... I'm just like, you know, I was watching this, like, thing on TikTok, like, you know, somebody crying. It's like me crying over fictional characters <laughs> of a book, and you're like, oh, these people ain't even real, you know? And that's how I felt writing them, you know? So in the case of Audrey, I was very... And also I was very like protective of like wanting to speak to the ways that everywhere in the world is still understanding how to love and accept queer folks, you know, and not sort of fixating on the ways that we feel like, oh, the Caribbean and Africa and these places really are so mean, you know what I mean, to queer folks and us in America, we're like the shit and Europe or what have you. But it's like there's so much sort of ways that, yeah, queer folks are unsafe and also safe and free and living and persistent in who they are regardless, you know? So I tried, so initially, and and to, you know, answer your question specifically, I was thinking of taking that part out or making it a little different, but then I went to Trinidad, um, where my mom is from and um, where Audrey's character and um, family is from. And you know, just talk to a, a myriad of LGBTQIA folks there. And it was freaking amazing because I grew up in Trinidadian culture, but I never knew any queer Trinis, you know. So going there and just hanging out with homies down there and um, interviewing so many folks. And some folks had hard coming outs that were, you know, whack like that. Some. Um as well as others having like, oh yeah, you know, this one 18-year-old kid I met, he's like, oh yeah, my mom's gay too. And she was cool with me being gay. And I was like, what? You know, like these are stories we don't get to hear. It's like we only hear about like, oh, hey, it's illegal to be gay in these places. And here's anti-gay violence that, you know, was experienced in this place. But I think the sort of beautiful, like, inherent queerness of Caribbean and Trinidadian culture, you know, especially with Carnival and, like, everybody's, like, whining and shaking up on people. And it's like, nobody cares what gender you are when it's time to whine and the music is good, you know? So, like, I wanted to sort of name some of the ways people reminded me that, like, you know, yeah, just of the multitudes of queerness that exist even in repressive queer space um, and queer experiences. And I wanted to give Audrey and Neri, you know, like the shadow experiences that is the reality of living in this world as queer people. Um, but there is just so much light and brightness that we bring to each other as queer folks and as queer community and like, I don't know. It's like, I want to be born back gay every fucking lifetime. Like, bring me back gay. Like, I do not want to come back straight. Like, that would be a nightmare. Like, I feel, I don't know. I'm not saying I should feel bad for my straight friends. But I do be feeling like, damn, like, what if I was straight? Like, that shit. And as a queer young person, I didn't feel this way at all. But, like, once you kind of come into how magical and wonderful it is to be in this existence, you know, like, I will take all, and that's how I feel about Blackness, too. It's like, I don't care how hard it is to be Black and how people will come for you for just being Black. I would never give up being Black. Like, it's the best. You know what I mean? And I just think that's how people should feel about themselves, you know? And I think that's the importance of writing the kind of work 
that I write is that like, I want young people to be like, yeah, I'm not going to feel this shame that like, you know, is put on us by a, a, you know, white folks. Like, I mean, obviously not all white folks. I don't know why I feel like I got to say that, but like, it's so the white identity or supremacy of how people really are like struggling, but just letting people be, you know, and like healing their stuff with their white ancestors who are traumatized. Like, you know, for real, like go heal with with General Lee, instead of trying to like commemorate him, be like, I'm so sorry that you believed foolishness and you were willing to allow so many people to die and to fight and to so you can enslave people who deserve to be free and beautiful and magical. Like y'all need to go heal with that ancestor and the ancestors that, you know, still believe that stuff, you know, and elders, you know, like to me, that is the kind of sort of reflections that need to be had right now, you know? Um, Anywho, I don't even know what I'd be talking about or where I got to from whatever the question was, but... (laughs) Can I ask you about your experience as a young person? Since you're, especially since you're writing that, you know, for that age, since you're writing, uh, you know, a YA book, um, what was, what were you like as a teen? What was that like for you? Hmm... Yeah, well, I grew up in the 90s, 80s and 90s, you know, Um, so I feel like I just feel like that's such an important detail (laughs) about my adolescence, you know, in the sense that there were a lot of like sort of beautiful cultural pop experiences that were happening, such as like, you know, hip hop and kind of like this, I think, non-binary sort of femme, like, experience such as TLC and Aaliyah and, you know, Lil' Kim and Missy Elliott. Like, there's a lot of ways that I just love the kind of things that shape me and also, like, alternative music and grunge and this, like, sort of emotional um, irreverence and need to kind of be authentic, you know? So that's kind of, like, the pretty stuff. And I feel like the shadow stuff of being raised in the 80s and 90s as a queer Black kid in particular, um, was that like, yeah, like I just didn't, I just really repressed my sexuality. Like I didn't think I, it was appropriate A, for me to be sexual as a Black girl either. Because I think there was like all of this shame around like, oh, teen pregnancy and being like sexualized as a Black girl. Because also I developed really early. Um, I'm from a big family. I'm like the middle kid of a huge kind of blended Caribbean family. My dad has a lot of kids. My mom and dad had four daughters together. Um, my dad, I have, yeah, siblings with, who got white mamas, siblings who got Honduran mamas and Dominican moms and stuff like that. So we're kind of, yeah, kind of like this multiple tribes, you know, of siblings. (laughs) And so I think like, it's a thing that like, I would be ashamed to even say because, I just, my family didn't make, didn't fit into anything I'd seen. But in thinking about myself as a young person, like, I think that was also a thing. Like, I was always kind of taking care of somebody or, um, and I think I was also a very dreamy and sensitive kid, you know, like my parents, (laughs) I think especially because they're just like these very, you know, they were raised in the 50s and 60s in the Caribbean and in New York. You know, my dad lived in New York um, as a young man. Like, they just had to be tough. 
You know, they couldn't necessarily dream, you know, so there was a lot of ways that my existence felt so soft to them. And that was like a tension. Um, and also, I think I was pretty depressed <laughs> as a kid, you know, like I was also very, I think, witchy and nerdy, but I certainly look back and I was like, oh, I was just so sad. And like, there was no context for sad Black girls to be sad, you know, so... Hence why I listened to the Courtney Loves and the, you know, the Kurt Cobains and, you know, all of these spaces of like, yeah, like these are people who could be openly depressed, mm. um, which to me was so like novel <laughs> and, um, yeah, intriguing. Yeah. I, am I just like, am I just 39 or do we actually talk? I was like, thinking about what you were saying about. Um, teen pregnancy do we actually talk about that differently now because i feel like we're probably not such a different age and yeah i literally turned 40 two weeks ago there you go yeah we're mm-hmm. the same age because as you were talking so my biggest my like yeah teen pregnant like and first of all n- never was that no boys are ever being addressed that's never but but i just i was thinking a lot about how like you know, like I went to a Catholic school and it was like, there were, you like knew which teachers would like try to look up your skirt. That was like a joke, like a, like a giggling around joke. I've, I thought about this a lot after I watched the like Britney Spears documentary. <gasps> oh my God, and, Britney. You know, I, and then she's I was our like, age too. And I was like, age. that's how yeah. they treated us. That's how they yes. treated us. Yes. She's our age too. Beyonce is also our age. And then mm-hmm. she was kind of her like breakthrough was l- like was it five or ten years like, like in terms of like when you know if like Britney was like a huge deal when she was like sixteen or so. I'm like making up these ages but like oh, that makes sense. then it was like it, thinking about the difference of like that was the biggest person the biggest like woman in pop or whatever and then if like if Beyonce's maybe like who was that next. You know, um, thinking about like they were totally different ages, like they were surrounded by a very different network of people who like protected them in such a different way and mm-hmm. made such different choices. Um, and anyway, I just was like, because the way that she was treated, that's how I was treated. I mean, that's how I felt treated and how I saw the people around me treated. I think. I got like a little bit of a reprieve because I had a steady boyfriend and we were like not having sex with each other because of how I was so very gay. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and so I think that like gave me a little protection, but like I saw my sister go through it. You know, she's like three years older than me. And it was like, it was awful for her, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm not saying, and now this is different. I just, that like specific focus on like, teen girls and then like congress doing hearings about it like that's what i feel like we were like raised in that feels mm-hmm. different you know like we, things have shifted it's not like things are and now everything's fixed now we're like individual governors are outlawing specific abortions or whatever it, shit is still fucked but that thing of like the teen girl is our ultimate enemy that i don't feel like i see that as much again it could just be because i'm for 39 and I don't know what it's like to be a teen girl, but I just, we were like Mm. the enemies of the state. And then 
you know, I would imagine, and then obviously adding blackness to that, it's like, well, th- there you go. You know, like then you're, you really, really are. But um, mm-hmm. that's just what I was thinking about as you were talking. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting to, you know, kind of have that retrospective of how our sort of shaping was shaped. Because I do think like whether we're conscious or not of it, there's ways we feel like we can be open with who we are, you know, whether it's our sexuality, whether it's just the way we want to express our sensuality. And I definitely feel like at that time, like teen girls were deeply pathologized Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also like, you know, attacked and, and, you know, and I do think like, um, I don't know how much that's changed, you know, like, I do you, do you still see it the same way? I just, I'm, I feel like I'm like out of the loop on it. So you feel like it's the same I, I just, to me, I feel like um, what may feel different is that there's more information. And I do think that people like us are raising this next generation. But I do feel like there's still that backlash that feels mm-hmm. like it wants to um, sort of really, I don't know, penalize women of all ages for taking agency of their sexuality. But I will say one thing that I do love is just seeing that there's just more media that, you know, just kind of in its existence refutes this, like, you know, predilection to be like, oh, this is how, you know, things are. You know, if you want to be a good girl or... I don't know. I do feel like, you know, we we live in a more pro-whole society. And I do think like a less because we also had at that time freaking Bill Clinton and his whole ass, you know, and, you know, very like, you know, whatever. And then we had um, I don't know if you remember this doctor. um, Is it Jocelyn Elders? who was like the, um, maybe her name is I got the wrong. Anyways, but she was like the attorney general or. Anyways, I need to get my facts straight. But she was the one who was like, we should teach masturbation in schools, you know? Oh, wow. As a, as an abs, as a, as a right. form of abstinence instead right. of, because remember, it was all about abstain, abstain. Right. And she was like, cool, y'all are idiots. Because she actually did a lot of stuff in D.C., to like, you know, work with, you know, just giving yep. access to other options because it was like abstain and then magically teen pregnancy is going to go away. You know what yep. I'm saying? And um, yep. but then there was also so there was just kind of like all of these things happening. You and know, Tipper Gore is like putting warning labels on all music because like that's also going to get us pregnant. Like if we like listen yes. to the wrong CD, it does feel like something <laughs> that also might have changed is just that like. As social media has filtered through now multiple generations, the mm-hmm. the young person can not like totally, but more much more than when we were teens, like speak in their own voice in creating media. So that like, you know, I literally don't know how old like Jojo Siwa is now. Maybe she's like thirty. She's like I literally have no idea how old she is. She's nineteen. <laughs> but like. Or 18. Yeah, you know, so so anyway, just that that person has like, you know, their own platform and is not the only one. Um, but or like Lil Nas X, for example, you Lil know, Lil Nas mean? X Who's- is impeccable at the like the messaging. Wow, congrats to that person. Congrats. Yeah, and it's so just kind of like so and just like and and embodying his own freedom and like mm-hmm. consciousness freedom. Like I'm not gonna be. 
shamed for being sexual. I'm not going to be shamed for being creative and weird. You know, matter of fact, I'm going to make you feel some type of way because you need to shame me for it. You know, like that's speaking to your inability to feel free, which I think is kind of a lot of his, you know, content is like, you know, my ability to feel free is triggering your ability to not feel free. And that's your shit to deal with, not me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because and we're going to run out of time in just a second. But all of this is very interesting to me, again, because going back to the stars and the blackness between them, there's um, there's like a at the start, you know, at the start of the book, Mabel's just like hanging out with a dude and like, you know, you're not and they're friends and you're not sure, you know, how that's going to go. And it kind of goes fine. Like things are fine. And (laughs) I have no idea if that's something anybody is experiencing today. I will say I don't think that that's totally what I was experiencing as a teen. And if it's more like this, I I feel so happy if that's true, you know. Um, And one thing that could change that is, yeah, not not shaming um, people for having sexual agency. And I think that's something that the book just really does beautifully mm-hmm. yeah no i think that's so important it's so important because it's like who decided that sexuality was going to be the thing that shame was so deeply ensconced and attached with oh you know God, like why know. Like, when did someone, because I'm like, you know, sex is just like, oh my gosh, I just need to like fuck sometimes. Like, I need to shit. Like, I need to like, oh. and for for those people who are into that, because there's some other people who are like, sex is not a thing actually for some people either, you know, but I feel like just the ways that like we're default to like ensconcing shame and sexuality, like that was a decision to disempower people, you know, right. or to control or what have you. So I think for me, and I I really do like lead with that in my work because of my experience of feeling so afraid to explore my desire with people, you know, um, that I wanted to explore my desire with. Like I want young people to be like, oh yeah, like, and that's what they do good already. Like that was actually the blessing of when I was working on this book, I was teaching for this program of kids who were, um, it was like all Black kids who, you know, had gotten into some, like, juvenile something with attendance or something dumb. I don't know what it was. Because he's... Anyway, so I was like, I don't know how these kids got in this program, but these kids are fucking dope. And just the amount of, like... It was, like, an all-girls group and an all-boys group, you know? And what was evident in the girls' group was just how much, like, open queerness there was. You know, being like, oh, you know, like, they... <laughs> Just where, you know, would talk about, oh, I don't like boys. You no, I don't like boys. Like it wasn't a thing of, uh, am I allowed to be queer in this space? But it's just like, oh, no. Or one will date a boy one time, date a girl, date another boy, date more girls. Like it just and this was a group of all black kids. And to me, I was like, oh, they already have figured it out. And these are kids <laughs> that aren't wouldn't aren't like middle class or rich posh kids or whatever who felt like oh they are privileged enough to explore their sexuality which to me was kind of how I felt about it like only certain people have the luxury to be queer because I am navigating being working class and black you know and immigrant or whatever um so yeah I think for me like I just loved hanging out with those kids and just oh I mean I was their 
teacher, you know, but there was a lot of ways where I was like, oh, these kids are just like, this is not the thing that's their hang up, <laughs> you know? So, or at least with this group of kids, which to me was extremely refreshing. Yeah, that's very hopeful. Well, before I send you back into your day, I just wanted to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel that you can be who you are today. You want to shout out a queero? Yes. Alexis Duvo is my queero. And um, she's my mentor and my, like, gay mama slash auntie slash, like, just deity. And, um, yeah, she was a mentor for this book. She's, like, very much like the Queenie character, and she's a Black queer author. And, um, yeah, she, for me, was the one who gave me permission to let this book be a gay book. And, uh, yeah, she's just that, like, hot, sexy 70-year-old something dyke who's like, you got your shit figured out. You still talking about how great (laughs) fucking and sexy life is. And, you know, she writes, like, so much genius stuff. And I think she, like, every time I talk to her, you know, like, yesterday we talked um, about me turning 40 and she just was like, oh, this is this is when you just the sexiest. This is just when it's like so hot. Like she's like, yeah, like this is your time to like situate your life for the rest of your life. You know, not to put over importance on this decade, you know, but you're setting up this, you know, moment right now for the rest of your life. And like in a lot of ways just sees it. So, yeah, like I could go on and on about Alexis, but everybody should know who Alexis Duvall is. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for letting me feature this book in my book club. I loved it. I love this book so much. And it's one of those things I just was wishing that it was um, compulsory reading for all high school students. Hey, so, let's, 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 let's switch it up. Let's switch it yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm putting it out into the universe. Um, but I hope you have a, a great rest of your day. And thank you so much for joining me. Yes, same to you. I loved it.